0: is a blood sport, and if you want
1: blood, you got it! Back, 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 take it, take it, take it! Welcome
0: to the No Lift Podcast, coming to you from Ireland, hosted by Arthur Lynch. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the No Lift Podcast with myself, Arthur Lynch. And returning for this episode of the show, I'm delighted to... Welcome, uh, Connor Heffernan. Connor, good afternoon. How are you?
2: Yeah, not too bad. Um, I'm up in Ulster University at the minute, so hopefully the Wi-Fi is holding up. I've taught four hours of classes, driven two hours to get here, and I'm working off very little sleep, but enthusiastic and excited to be here.
0: That's a solid combination. <laughs> and uh, it's also a pleasure to welcome uh, Guy Lockhead and Lottie Kamenga. Uh, apologies if I mispronounce the names, guys. But it's a pleasure to welcome you both onto the show. Guy and Lottie are committee members at the Bristol Co-op gym, and the the theme of this episode is going to be centered around co-op gyms. You know what are they? How are they set up? How do they run? And uh, I guess the the philosophy behind them, uh, so to speak. So, welcome to both of you. How are you both doing this afternoon?
3: Oh, um, I'm all right, all right. Thanks. Yeah, I've just had a quite a hot bath, so I feel a bit lightheaded.
0: Right. Well, before we go any further and uh talk about uh co-op gyms and the history of co-op gyms and and that sort of thing. Um could we get a brief overview of who you both are and how you've got to where you are today? Um so maybe maybe we start with yourself, Lottie. Um yeah,
1: Maybe I should say it's pronounced Lotta, but I don't mind Lottie. Both are fine. Um Yeah, uh, I. my name's Lotta. Um, I'm one of the directors at the Bristol Cooperative Gym. I've been a director for like a little over a year now, but I've been going to the gym for about three years. And for the rest, I have no background in any gym-related thing. So I'm just like a person who got um wrapped up in the co-op gym. Um, knowing nothing about gyms or anything beforehand
3: um guy uh I started the gym in two thousand and sixteen uh and that was sort of out of uh recognizing how many people feel uncomfortable in a conventional gym environment and trying to imagine a sort of antithesis to that. Uh, and then just kind of, yeah, following that and being like, oh, so it should be probably not for profit, probably owned by the members, controlled by the members. Um, and then, yeah, just thought, oh, probably worth giving this a try then. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was back in September 2016. At the time, it more that just running kind of classes in a community space in East Bristol. Uh, and it was kind of a gym. And a cooperative by name only, and then over time it's become a little bit more truly cooperative, or a lot more truly cooperative. And uh, we've moved into our own studio in November last year.
0: Cool. And if I was just to tease that out a little bit more, so you you mentioned about, uh, I suppose, uh, experiences that that people have had in the gym and, and probably not not so nice ones. Could you share some maybe some experiences there? I don't know if they're personal ones for you or for people that you know, just so that, well, perhaps some of those stories might resonate with listeners, or uh, if not, it will give them a little bit more context behind the thinking behind setting up the co-op gym, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it it was more out of a sort of fascination about where fitness culture came from, you know, such as it is. Like, it seems you could go to any gym anywhere in the world like of a, of a certain type and you'd sort of know relatively speaking like what you were likely to find there um, and that sort of lack of um, difference that lack of like sort of diversity in terms of the training environment in terms of like sort of training culture and I'm talking I suppose mainly about sort of discount gyms and like the big chain gyms that people that probably are like our first kind of point of call if we wanted to, if we decided to get fitter or, you know, decided to start going to the gym. Um It's a real sort of monoculture. Um And we know from looking at uh, data around this stuff that there's a big kind of socioeconomic aspect to that. There's like, uh, uh, yeah, it was like there are sort of strong kind of cultural, and social uh, forces that shape that experience mm. and that the gym environment tends to reproduce the same sorts of uh, forces that we experience more broadly socially so we know that like uh, women and lgbt people are less likely to be uh, as physically active uh, that older people are less likely to be as physically active and i think like with uh, in gyms particular, it seems to be i don't know particularly uh, a particular narrow kind of cultural experience I suppose um and you know we know the kind of benefits that strength training uh can bring uh so I was kind of like thinking especially about how this particular fitness culture around strength training uh had came to be and uh yeah just wanting to kind of imagine something a little more a little more varied a little more welcoming um a lot more welcoming um but yeah like i say i feel like there are like strong kind of external kind of cultural forces that uh that affect that experience um so you know i can't say that i've had like particularly awful negative experiences in the gym um and I think the purpose, but I think the purpose of like a cooperative gym is trying to bring in people who, you know, are sort of directly affected by those environments and sort of set have a kind of model that allows them to kind of lead the space and kind of uh, create an environment that they would prefer to be in and that would open up all those benefits to them as well, which we know at the moment isn't really happening.
0: Very good. So, for the listener who wouldn't be familiar with, I suppose even the term of a co-op gym, and to be quite honest, until until Connor made me aware of you guys fairly recently, I had never heard the term either. So, could you kind of give a bit of an overview of what a what's meant by the term co-op gym as opposed to, uh, I suppose, any other type of type of gym, be that a commercial or a or a semi-private uh, or a private facility?
3: Yeah. So, I mean fundamentally it just means that it's like owned by its members um the cooperative model i can't pretend to be a proper expert on the history of cooperatives but um i it sort of has its roots in sort of 19th century as i understand it sort of 19th century uh kind of worker organization um i think i think some of the earliest examples were people um growing wheat and then getting together to uh, buy a mill for themselves so they could mill their own grain rather than having to pay someone extortionate rates to do it for them um and i think there yeah i think it's sort of mid 19th century um was kind of when the first kind of modern co-op was founded and they have these kind of seven cooperative principles um which we as the co-op gym sort of tried to, to sort of stick to as well. And these are to have sort of open and voluntary membership for the gym to be sort of democratically controlled by the members that members participate economically in the, uh, in the organization, uh, that it's, that the organization is like autonomous and independent, that there's, there's a kind of aspect of education in the model as well. So we try to like share skills and put on workshops for our members Um, that there's kind of cooperation between cooperatives as well. So like Bristol is quite a, uh, has a quite a strong kind of cooperative uh, support network. And we, you know, we have a lot of crossovers with other co-ops in the city. And lastly, like a concern for community. So trying to be sort of engaged with your local area and uh, reach out to people. Um, so when I started it, I didn't know this really, I sort of was, I kind of arrived there through thinking that it just would make sense for the gym to be run by its members. And then finding out more, it just seems like there's quite a neat fit between, um, these principles and the gym model, really, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to apply those principles in a gym setting. And that's what we've tried to do.
0: Right. And so, not to sound, not to sound cynical or anything like that, but I suppose almost kind of playing devil's advocate with you, or uh, even just just to kind of improve my own understanding of how the operation works, and uh, perhaps Lada can um, chime in on this as well. But I suppose what I am thinking of is, like, at the end of the day, a kid's got to eat. <laughs> so, from from your point of view, how do you ensure that? The gym generates enough revenue so that you're able to look after yourself as as well as your your clientele.
1: Um, so, are the people who come to our gym, there's a really like strong community sense, um, and so we have a lot of um, people who keep coming back. And it's also what we saw like during the pandemic that we lost. Uh, like some members, but a lot of our members kept with us. So, um, we don't have like the churn of people that I imagine, um, quote unquote normal gyms normally have. Um, we also have a pricing model that is, um, based on usage. So, um, if you only want to come to, or if you want to come to the gym one day a week, then it's, less money than if you want to come to the gym multiple days a week and so it's like people can pay um like a fair amount because we want to make it um accessible to as many members as possible um and so i think like having that like base of members that is growing and has especially since we've uh gotten to our own place and we now are back from being online to just being outside to now being inside in our own place, uh, lifting up actual things again. Um, it's the like the member base is really growing. And then separately, because we are not for profit and we really help, uh, people who normally would be, um, not going to the gym for whatever reason. Um, we also can apply for some funding. Uh, so there are different um organizations that help uh organizations like us to reach more people um and um have funding available for that so that's also part of what we can sometimes use for um growing our gym
3: yeah i think to sort of add to what I was saying, like i think there are definitely advantages to the model in like uh yeah having those strong relationships with the members um And we can apply for funding, but we do, we are, we are sustainable without the funding. We kind of use the funding if we need to do any serious kind of steps up from where we are. So, for example, when we were looking for our own venue or at the moment when we're kind of renovating the space that we're in, we're doing that, uh, through hopefully, uh, receiving funds from outside. Um, but, uh, you know, fundamentally it still needs to run as a, as a business. So we're always making sure that, um, the classes are, you know, kind of paying for themselves, that attendance levels are at the level we need them to be in order to be viable. Um, so even though there's this kind of social mission, uh, or as well as there being this social mission, there's, you know, just basic kind of running a business stuff alongside it. Um, and we're really lucky to have some really skilled members who, um, who, who kind of take that on, uh, voluntarily. So, uh, our treasurer Rachel had just kind of did all of our, uh, overseeing our kind of bookkeeping for two years. And we've recently taken on, uh, Kerry, who's helping kind of like, uh, do more like sort of st- strategic sort of planning, uh, with the finances. And then like, yeah, Lot- Lotta is, does tons of amazing, like data analysis about our attendances. So, you know, Another advantage of being a co-op is you can, hopefully, you know, you can work with people who have a whole range of skills that contribute towards the uh, success of the organization. Um, you know, both in terms of its like social mission and just being a viable business. You know,
0: Connor, can you at this point jump in with a historical perspective on co-op gyms?
2: Yeah, perfect. I think the thing to consider is that, I mean, in actuality, the co-op gym is probably the, the first type of gym in human existence. And what I mean by that is, like, we could go to way back when in ancient Athens when people would come together and create a gym and turn it into a gym, but also a university and also a social space. But then even looking at the types of gyms which emerged in the 1800s and the turn gyms, the sort of bodyweight calisthenic gyms, oftentimes everyone was paying a fee. It wasn't being run for profit, it is being run as a community-based endeavor. Now, you did have private gyms in the 1800s, and they become the dominant form of gyms. But really, the first wave of gyms in the 1790s and 1800s, a lot of them are more community-based gyms. Now, if we want to go a little bit more modern, we'd probably be looking at something like the health and strength gymnasiums, and I've talked to Guy about this previously, in 1910 1920 1930 Health and Strength magazine which is the premier fitness magazine in Great Britain and the British Empire creates a Health and Strength League which is basically like a, a membership informally that, that one can acquire to you know get a little health and strength badge tell people they're in the Health and Strength League get a discount on Health and Strength magazine but the real as well as magic of the Health and Strength League is they say we want to help members create their own gyms and be- because the Health and Strength League was all about community. Its motto was sacred thy body as thy soul. They said that any health and strength gym which was created would be a co-op. And they set out a sort of baseline structure for co-op gyms to to emerge in Great Britain. These gyms would have been weightlifting gyms, wrestling gyms, bodybuilding gyms, early powerlifting gyms, predominantly in working class areas, much in the same way that in in the Bristol co-op we're seeing members pooling their resources be it data analysis be it as well as being able to interact with people see what they like in a fitness sense being able to pool their strengths and weaknesses these health and strength gyms relied on people being able to make their own equipment people being able to help individuals get jobs in the community people being able to help others help themselves for want of a better phrase and i think the interesting thing is the health and strength co-op model it lasts for like 30 or 40 years it sort of dies out in England um, in the 1960s and 1970s when it's replaced by the sort of big globo gyms. And generationally, people start to do different types of fitness. But like we have, and I think, Arthur, we've talked about it before, like we have a living example of a, a health and strength co-op gym in Ireland, which is Hercules Gym in Dublin, which was founded in 1935, as a co-op and still exists today. So I think when we're looking at the lineage of co-op gyms, it's important to think about the fact that like the co-op is sort of the original and then it's the capitalist model, which is the more recent of the two. And we can have a philosophical conversation about which is better for the future of humanity. I would probably side more with the co-op than the capitalist model. But it is just interesting to think about how these economic structures within the gym actually change the philosophy of the gym. So the co-op gyms are more community based and actually do have that longer lineage.
0: Very good. Uh, and yeah, that was probably going to be, uh, my next question for you was around, uh, was around the Hercules gym. And cause to, to the best of my knowledge, that's the only co- cooperative, uh, gym structure within Ireland. You know, I'm not, I'm not aware of any others, although, I, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, I haven't spent a, a lot of time searching for them if, if you know what I mean. So yeah. Do you think that it's sort of a, a similar philosophy adopted there?
2: Yeah, let me, and on co-ops, like Hercules founded in 1935. That's the first co-op gym. We get co-op gyms branching out into Watford, Cork, Belfast, um, Galway, Mayo, and a host of different towns and cities around Ireland. There could well be another co-op which exists that I'm unaware of. Um, but it does seem like Herx is the, is the, the only one still in existence. Now, the thing that's interesting about Herx is it goes into sort of what Guy is talking about that desire for something different and that desire to help the community because the bantamweight British wrestler who founds Herx in Ormond Quay, um, George Dale, I think his name was, his express intention was to help the local youths. So put into the slightly more direct and harsh language of the 1930s, he said that he wanted to save the teenagers from delinquency in inner city Dublin. So he said the best thing to do would be to set up this cooperative gym It's predominantly working class, men are coming together, creating equipment, and actually keeping an eye on that younger generation. So certainly, Herx's community element is very similar to, say, what Guy and the Bristol Co-op are doing in the sense of creating that community within a local area. And I suppose the only thing to think about, Arthur, from your own world, which might be similar, is I think a lot of powerlifting gyms sort of operate in a middle space between having that community but then also being like a capitalist um, structure or a capitalist setup. Like I think the community element is often fostered in certain gyms where things like Herx or the Bristol co-op go one further is they maybe give members a little bit more influence and say over the direction of the gym.
0: Yeah. I think you're dead right uh, in saying that in that somewhere like the facility that I train at and that I'd be affiliated with uh, City Gym Limerick will be sort of like somewhere in between the, the, the pure commercial model and the, the cooperative model. And that's why I suppose I was interested uh, to know how, how you guys pardon the pun guy and, and a lot uh, how you guys make the co-op gym model financially sustainable. Because, you know, when, it, when you're talking about something that's non-for-profit, I mean, it, that that's where I suppose I'd be, I'd be keen to know how, how you go about your business. And you, you clearly you've, you've outlined it already. You, you uh, it's a you run a fairly shrewd operation, so that that's really cool. And um, there's something else that I want to explore for a moment, and that's uh, in some of the the pieces you've written, Guy. I know you've talked about applying the the self determination theory to, I suppose, like as a sort of a framework for the uh the gym itself. So could you outline that for a moment for the listeners and how that relates to the the co op gym?
3: Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um again, I can't I can't pretend to be an expert on this. I've only this is just like stuff that I've read. <laughs> but um so as far as I understand, self-determination theory is a kind of uh theory of motivation, psychological theory of motivation. Um and it identifies these three sort of characteristics which seem to give us more uh intrinsic motivation. Um which are autonomy so feeling like we have uh like that we're able to uh to act uh belonging feeling like we're part of a, a community and competence so like we have the um i guess the skill or the knowledge to act um and yeah i remember reading some review like systematic reviews of the relationship between self-determination theory and exercise um and yeah saying how much more likely people were to stick with their exercise habit if they felt that they were autonomous and part of a community and um and competent um so yeah again for me that just felt like a really nice match with uh, a kind of cooperative model um but again you know i don't think it's Just to, just to sort of build on what, on what you and and Connor were saying, like, I think that one of the, I I I definitely think that it's true that gyms can have a very strong community without being cooperative. I mean, obviously, you know, um, and for me, one of the big things in the, before forming the gym was starting to go to a brilliant uh, weightlifting gym in Bristol, which sadly doesn't exist anymore, which was called my gym in St. Paul's. Um, and it was a brilliant, like, mixed space with some really high level powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, taekwondo classes, and they had a small kind of, um, you know, sort of bodybuilding area as well. But it was just a real kind of mix of people who used it, um, all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of interests. Um, and the space was held in such a way that, uh, yeah, everyone just kind of, you know, you'd have a lot of like chat during your rest periods and, that was as much of a, uh, as much of a, the experience for me as a member as whatever lifting I was doing at the time, you know? Um, but I think, uh, and, and, you know, I know that when, when CrossFit was, you know, with the kind of initial CrossFit boom, that was the big thing that everyone said about CrossFit was like, Oh, well, you know, there are these problems with it, but oh, the community is fantastic, you know? And that's surely that's one of the most kind of, uh, pretty pure kind of capitalist kind of examples of, you know, in, in, in the sort of fitness industry. Um, but yeah, so I think that all the co-op model does is just take that, that one step further, uh, to sort of, um, share the power, you know, at the kind of structural kind of governance level, um, and just kind of, I don't know, get rid of that divide, I suppose, between the people running the gym and the, and the community who, uh, sort of, nurtured in the gym
0: you know mm. now in our email conversations um prior to setting up this podcast you mentioned about a, a collaborative gym design process that you've recently been through so can can we talk about that for a moment and i suppose what was involved and who was involved and and what were the what were the results like overall
3: can do
1: sure um <laughs> Yeah, so the space that we're in at the moment used to be a office building and that's still very visible. So it has a carpet on the floor and uh, lots and lots of sockets um, for screens and computers and everything. Um, and so we're working with a architect. Um, firm called 2A1M who have, um, helped us design a gym space that can really feel like our home. Um, and so we've done that in a cooperative way. So we've done it in, um, yeah, very collaboratively. So we had ongoing conversations with them on online and we had multiple meetings with them. So the first meeting that we had with, um, the, the architects, um, some of the cooperative members got together in the space and we were thinking about like, okay, so what does it feel like to walk into the space? Um, when do you like how, where does the equipment, is, where is it stored? Like, um, what is the process of being at a gym class? Um, and, um, so they really like talked to us about, um yeah very much like the the vibe of the place rather than the practicalities of like you know what does the floor look like more about like how do you use the space um and then they went away and took all of our thoughts and then they came up with like i think like six different like quite quite like um varied options for designs and we again got together in the space and we talked about like what we liked and what we didn't like about these six designs and then, um, they again went away and like, so we refined it, um, by lots and lots of conversations both in person and online which really meant that everyone could have a say in how they would feel most um welcome into the space um and what we have come up with now is this really like i'm very excited about the design um where you walk in and then One of the things that we wanted was for it to not feel intimidating for new people coming into a space. I think sometimes when you walk into a gym, you walk in and it's like immediately these like intimidating machines or like these really heavy weights. And I think what we wanted as well is for people to walk in and not immediately feel pressure to you know, interact with all of these weights. So we have, like, this really big shelving unit on the side where all of the weights go in. Um And, yeah, so we really wanted to make it as, like, welcoming as possible to anyone, especially people who might feel intimidated about going to a gym and, like, what that space feels like. And also about, like, we thought about, like, different ways of making it accessible to people with different abilities but also neurodiversity and um, yeah we really thought about like as varied as possible with all of our members what the space should look like and really designed it as a big collaborative process.
0: Mm. Um, Was it difficult to get people to agree on on that or did you just kind of go with the majority feel or uh what w- what level of, of agreement was there between the members in terms of how it should be laid out
1: i think we all just sort of knew like what we wanted out of it i think there were some disagreements but not like fundamental disagreements i think there were like differences in opinion and i think also in making something accessible there's um different ways of making it accessible to a specific type of person, which might make it less accessible to other people. For example, one of the things that came up in the design was that for neurodivergent people, it might be nice to have a more um, secluded part of the gym, where you sort of don't have the entire room Visible, but you're sort of in your own space. However, if you have a visual impairment, it might be nicer to not have obstacles in the in the room. And so there were all of these considerations where there were lots of different um, people sharing their thoughts and like um, like on on that kind of stuff. But I don't think there were any major disagreements that I remember. Do you remember any of disagreements, Guy?
3: i remember I, I mean i suppose that this kind of speaks to a, a kind of wider thing around cooperative working processes in general um because there is a kind of uh i think there are good and kind of more faffy ways of um organizing a, a group like that you know like we we don't operate by consensus um at the moment we t- we do a, like a sort of majority uh, majority vote um yeah that can be blocked but yeah um so we don't sort of have to get everyone on board to do everything um and that's true sort of throughout the organization you know um i think one of the other things one of the other things that's helpful is like we don't make every decision together all the time um sometimes roles are kind of given to specific people who have like the time to deal with something or the expertise or the experience um so for example with the design process i think the fact that we worked with architects was really helpful for that because they sort of held the process and kind of guided us through it and we would have these meetings where they were very open and everyone was uh, contributing their thoughts but then the architects would go away process those and present something for us to respond to again so i think that if we were kind of creating through a committee you know literally like draw making a drawing together or whatever i mean i really think that would have been tricky but with the way that we did it with this kind of like coming together then going away again coming together going away again yeah it seemed to work pretty well and i suppose that like we most of the kind of fundamental stuff was settled at a very early stage where we kind of laid out the brief so with some of the later design decisions it was just a case of kind of referring back to the brief and being like are we still on track with this thing that we agreed you know um so there are a few a few kind of tools like that i suppose to keep from everything just sprawling
0: you know yeah and uh connor to get the perspective of a of a gym member for a moment i, I know that you've been a member of the hercules club in the past um were were you uh were you part of that sort of collaborative process and sort of making decisions about the gym and you know if there's a a surplus of money and they're thinking about getting new equipment what you might like or i don't know certain decisions that um the gym is kind of um letting the members sort of have some input on like like what, what was that like from your point of view
2: yeah so unfortunately i'm now in my own um garden based co-op so i train in my back garden um under a very cheap gazebo I bought at Halford. so i'm both the committee and the owner uh, which has been interesting. A few nights ago, I was bench pressing at half nine at night in the lashing rain. So something sl- sort of psychotic about that, but we don't need to go into it. Um, in terms of how Herx did it, and now this may change because I think 2016 or 2017 was last time I trained in Herx for various reasons. They, they voted in a committee every year and the committee met several times a year and the committee would you know deliberate on all of these different things. But that being said, anyone could stand to be on the committee and anyone could bring anything to the committee. So if there was a surplus of money, one could go to the AGM or one could go to a committee meeting and make a pitch for a new piece of equipment or investing it into changing the showers or, you know, investing into a liquor paint or what have you. And then the value of that, which it didn't dawn on me until I went back to a commercial gym because we moved uh, country was the ability to have some form of agency in the club's direction often meant a huge amount of buy-in from club members. So Hercules is the only gym I've been to where I've happily and willingly moved equipment around the gym floor because they're trying to do renovations. Hercules is the only gym I've been in where members will paint the walls, will pull up the floors, will help in the maintenance of the equipment because they have that buy-in. So I think my own perspective, Hercules did a little bit differently, but not actually too differently in the sense of people with expertise could take on positions of power. One of the people at the time on the committee was very high up in Irish weightlifting and several of them were very high up in Irish powerlifting. So like people with that expertise and that deep knowledge of how a gym worked would stand and would be voted in. And then members had the autonomy of actually pitching something to the committee and not in the way of you know, I was in another gym and I said, I spent two years chatting to the owner about buying a reverse hyperextension and not getting anywhere. That was just me sort of cornering them at the reception area. Um, but in her, you could actually, you know, go make your pitch and your, your voice would be listened to not necessarily. Everything would be agreed on and things would be rejected because of the variety of things people need to do. I think in the Bristol co-op, it's the same. It's interesting to see. It's a similar sort of thing where we're relying on expertise where we are going to come to consensus on certain issues, but we do have a, a sort of baseline framework that's going to guide everything. And certainly when I joined Herx, I was given a small membership booklet, and then someone explained how the, how the gym worked and how it operated. So I, I think, although maybe the nuts and bolts are different between these two gyms, the, there is a commonality underpinning them. And I think that is agency and accessibility because Hercules, especially over the last 10 years, has become a much more accessible place, um, depending on ability or gender. And I think that's because it's more open to members' demands and members' needs and members' suggestions than maybe a Globo gym sort of would be.
0: So just to follow on from that point, Guy, if if someone living near the Bristol Co-op gym uh, is, is interested in at checking it out or you know they want to maybe maybe they're considering becoming a member like on a on a weekly basis what does the the running of the gym look like i mean do do members come in and do sort of an open gym session or is it all uh group-based sessions or personal training sessions or ha- how do you guys work it
3: so at the moment we only yeah. offer classes um and this is something that you know, it's, it's kind of come from our, our origins, I suppose, where we were renting a hall by the hour and um, yeah, we'd have like a strength training class and the, even the format of the class was very specific to that setting because when we set up, uh, I just bought us like two barbells, uh, 110 kilos of plates and then we kind of were lucky to get given some kit from a very nice CrossFit gym called, uh, CrossFit 605 South Bristol, give them some credit, very kind of them. Um, uh, so yeah, we kind of ended up with this kind of strange, unique, uh, strength training class. Um, and we still just have, uh, classes in the evenings. We've tried other times a day, but because, you know, like I said, we're very responsive to like, which classes are popular or whatever at the moment we just have, uh, two classes on two or three classes running from Monday to Thursday. Um, so we've still got our strength circuit. We've got a, a a session called all round weightlifting, where we try some of the, you know, some of these kind of lost lifts, uh, some of the more kind of, I guess, like classic, like strong man, strong woman stuff. Um, it was really good fun. We have a punk aerobics class, uh, We're, yeah, with Charlie Bones, uh, who's yeah, it's just great. Like aerobics to punk music. Um, uh, we have stretching class, like some high intensity fitness classes, um, more of a sort of strength endurance class with, uh, Millie and a running club that meets in, uh, in Eastville park. Um, and if anyone's interested in trying us, then we have like a free trial week, um, We also try to make use of the fact that gyms have these peaks of busyness, you know, like typically, I guess, before work, maybe a bit in lunchtime and then a lot after work um, to try. And we want to make good use of the space in those quieter periods. Um, And this is something that we've only been able to do since moving into our own space. So we're still kind of figuring it out. But at the moment, for example, we're running a lunchtime class in collaboration with, uh, an organization here called off the record, which is like a youth mental health charity, and we're doing a sort of introduction to weightlifting for some of the, um, 16 to 25 year olds that use their, uh, use their services, um, and it's, it's just great fun, you know, uh, to be able to use the gym, uh, at a time that it would otherwise be empty, um, and try and try and reach some of the people that we yeah really hope to reach.
0: Mm. Uh, I must say, hearing of a class consisting of lost lifts, uh, I can see now why Connor has taken such a shine to you folks, because that sounds <laughs> that sounds right up his street.
2: <laughs> yeah. There may have been a bit of self-interest uh, in that regard, but I, I think, like, for me, the co-op is just such an interesting example of, like, different pathways and, d- and different approaches to fitness. And I think, like, Arthur, and we've done our you know, dispelling myths podcasts or even like history of the squat podcasts, etc. Like I think it's important that people realise that there's no one way to do anything in the fitness space. And just because these capitalist for profit gyms are the dominant like the dominant strain, that alternatives don't exist and you can't have like really cool, even like countercultural, um like sort of, like there's an element of like forgive me guy and lotta like sort of like punk about the Bristol co-op um which i think is quite awesome and i i so the the last lifts hooked me but the general philosophy
3: of bristol uh kept me around i i think that 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 punk kind of diy ethos is really a really kind of fundamental part of it and i think that like for me like the lost lifts that speaks to that as well because it's like you know the reason that we kind of narrowed down to the the squat bench and deadlift or like the snatch and the clean and jerk was for, as I understand it, and Connor, you'll have a much better understanding, but was around kind of standardizing for international competition. So if you're not competing internationally, you can just stay, you know, there's no reason really. Um, you could just stay wacky and just do things that are enjoyable. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, we've, i made the mistake of starting. When we launched the class, starting everyone with zercher squats. So I think, um, you know, we maybe we lost a few people with sore elbows after that, but otherwise I think it's gone fairly well.
2: Uh, out of interest, what's the starter lift now? Because when you said Zercher squats, I just had flashbacks of the first time I did it, and I cut off the blood supply to my to my forearm. So what, what what's the the gateway now into last lifts?
3: Well, that, I mean, we, it worked quite well. I would say I think. We, I mean, I did. I mean, that was just the way we, we sort of cycle the lifts every, I don't know, six to eight weeks sort of thing. Um I think people kind of put up with it for a couple of weeks and then started to started to rebel. So I had to change it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think also like, especially the all round weightlifting class really feels like just sort of hanging out and lifting up some stuff like it feels it's really chilled there's one member that has described the co gym as a pub gym because it's just you sort of like come there hang out with some people and lift up some stuff and i absolutely agree with that i think it's something we're embracing as well we're going to do a pb and pizza night as well where it's just you sort of come to the gym hang out with some people lift up some stuff if that's what you want to do and it's just it's very informal. I quite like that.
2: Yeah, and at the risk of injecting too much history into this, like this is what the sort of early weightlifting gyms would have been in Europe and in Britain in their late 1890s, early 1900s. Like the stories of, you know, Arthur Saxon and the Saxon brothers just sort of hanging around the gym for hours, drinking beer and lifting weights and socialising. Like obviously there's training going on, but these early gyms were a lot more like, you know, let's just lift some heavy stuff and see what happens. And there's stories of people bent pressing barbells with, you know, kettlebells tied onto it with chains and dumbbells and running the rack and just like exploring how the body works through a variety of modalities. They're getting stronger. They were training, but it wasn't the, and I say this as someone who does use apps on my phone sometimes when I'm doing a powerlifting cycle, you know, I'm going in, I've 45 minutes to an hour. I have two minutes rest. I'm using 95%, you know, 95% of my one RM. Like very specialized on free lifts, like the early gyms were a much more open space, and people got stronger and people enjoyed themselves, etc. So there's
3: a lot to be said for the pub gym, uh, in my own humble opinion. I I remember reading um, Henning Eichberg um, stuff around body cultures, and he he sort of talks about these three sort of forms of uh, exercise or movement, um, and he talks about like. Like one being sort of uh, like competing um, and uh, sort of that as a a sort of proxy, uh, almost like a proxy war kind of thing. You know, there are these sort of international politics that play out in the Olympics and, in you know, in international sport. Um, uh, yeah, so there's that kind of that way of exercising. Um, and then there's like sort of like uh, sort of disciplining the body towards like an ideal. So, for example, training for the military or bodybuilding um, or like, you know, I think quite a lot of sort of, I guess, uh, the dominant fitness culture is kind of around that. And then there's this third category uh, of just this kind of emergent, playful thing that happens when you get a bunch of people together. And it's not unusual, you know, if you're, I don't know, if you're like sitting at the beach it's like oh let's see if you can throw that these throw a rock and try and hit this thing or like you know you know i guess like dancing or like uh you know sometimes in classes like the other day like last night actually we were in a hit class and then lotta actually was doing something with the one of the swiss ball things we had like some ab exercise in it and then just started like trying to roll into a handstand from that. And then every, and then like a couple other people got involved and then it. You know, it's very quick to kind of, it feels like a natural playful thing to be like, "Oh, try this. Oh, try this, you know? So I guess like we try and keep that energy rather than going into this kind of comp- competitive realm or the mm. sort of disciplining the body kind of realm.
0: I can see some parallels here with more conventional sporting activities when it becomes like, so, um, scripted and so competitive at such an early age that you 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 almost squeeze the fun out of it and sort of being able to rediscover that be that you know you go from playing uh a a bit of um you know competitive football at a young age and you just get you get disillusioned from it because you know maybe maybe your skill set wasn't quite up to it um to like you know later on you you're just doing a game of five a side, and it's like you—you're barely even keeping score. It's just literally just for the kickabout and rediscovering the fun of just—just just being active and just doing the thing for the sake of it, because it's because it's fun to do. I can see a lot of parallels here,
2: mm. and to just draw that a little bit further, like this is what made um, something like CrossFit, even though it was run for profit. So subversive initially because it did target those people who were saying, like, listen, at the time, like, bodybuilding is a dominant paradigm. Like, I don't really want to do, you know, X amount of sets um, and reps in a very prosaic, you know, fashion. It's the same thing every week. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing, or even powerlifting or even Olympic lifting. Like, I think CrossFit came at a moment in time where people were reacting against how specialized even just going to the gym had been. And it introduced all these different modalities and planes of movement now we can talk about some of the problems across it but i think you know never mind how serious sport can get like at times like our own training can get quite serious and we get very limited to you know pushing up or out or squat you know squatting down and up um to the detriment of like it can actually be quite fun to sort of you know play around with a zercher squat or do a jefferson lift or do a bent press or a turkish getup like you don't need to be excelling in the numbers on these, but sometimes it's just fun to see what your body can do.
0: Yeah. Um. So it's my understanding that you folks are running a crowdfunder to renovate your, your new studio uh, next month if, if memory serves correctly. So uh, do you guys want to tell us a little bit more about that and what you have planned for it?
3: Um, yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that invitation. That's very kind. Yeah. It's so we've, we've gone through this process, this design process. Um, and we've got a design that we're really happy with. Um, and that we think will also kind of show a, a sort of different kind of paradigm to potentially to, to gym, gym design. <clears throat> and so we're looking forward to, to building it not just for our members, but also to demonstrate like how this kind of process can happen and how a gym like this can function. Um, so at the moment, our campaign's scheduled to run from the 7th of March. Um, and yeah, we'll sort of be, you know, putting that all out on our Instagram and everything and, um, through our newsletter, if anyone's um, interested to, to sign up so we can kind of let them know when it starts. Um, we've got tons of, uh rewards, um, some really nice things with, uh, we, we have these illustrations in our sort of branding, I suppose, done by Jade Perkin, who's uh, one of the co-op members, um, is a fantastic illustrator. Um, so we've got some t shirts with her designs on that are really nice. Um, and then some stuff that people if you're not in Bristol, that you could still kind of uh, experience our way of training, I suppose, with some of our like, some online versions of the classes that we run um and oh we have a sponsor sponsor a barbell if you would like to do that and you can design the uh, end cap for our barbells and we'll uh, remember you every time we lift <clears throat> um so and the oh yeah and the other thing i'd be nice to invite everyone to uh, an event that we're running on the saturday 9th of april which is called the Bristol Cooperative Games where we will be competing in sort of randomly assigned pairs in the double deadlift so you'll book onto the event you turn up put everyone's name in a hat and draw out pairs so you'll be partnered with someone that you might not have met before and then um, you know together you're going to decide what your first lift attempt is going to be give it a go and adjust up you've got three attempts to try and deadlift together the heaviest weight you can and we'll have a sort of uh you know meaningless prize for the winner and uh i think we're also going to do a prize for whoever lifts together the biggest difference from what they could lift individually added together mm-hmm. if that makes sense um yeah so come along if that sounds interesting
0: yeah sounds like a lot of fun now guy i know you're pressed for time so just lastly if if you guys a uh, Lada and guy want to plug any social media or the website or anywhere else that people can find out about the the, co- the co-op gym or follow you guys and, and see what's upcoming for you um, where, where would be the best places to, to direct them to?
1: Um, Guy do you want to take this one? <laughs>
3: yeah. um, I don't have them in so, front of me so I don't want to accidentally <laughs> say the wrong one. I know because we've got a different Instagram handle and Facebook handle it's a disaster. Um <laughs> Uh, website is bristolcooperativegym.org and on instagram we're at @bristolcooperativegym
0: fantastic uh well thank you to all f- for joining me on the on this call i i hope you enjoyed the the conversation and as always thanks to the listeners for for tuning in i hope you found this uh thought provoking and uh, and interesting and uh we'll talk to you all again soon
1: thanks for having us
3: yeah thanks so much thank you